welcome this evening. Glad you're here. How of you are glad to be in church? Are you glad? All right. Okay. I, uh, I hate the weather this Christmas here in Charleston. It's, uh, it's rough. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure it's going to be a, a white Christmas. What do you think? <laughs> so you don't even, some of you are hostile with that. You don't even want a white Christmas. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus. Uh, we're glad that you're along or on the internet, maybe on a podcast, and uh, I hope the weather is uh, acceptable wherever you are, whatever you like. We're, we're glad you guys are along. I, I, I'm sure that most of us would agree uh, that Christmas can be somewhat stressful. Uh, the shopping, I know that for me is always stressful. For, so this year, finally got Debbie convinced, let's do most of it online. And I thought that would take a lot of the stress out of it, right? Well, I use Apple products. I'm a part of the cult. I drink the Kool-Aid, whatever. And so I can remember a couple of times in this season of ordering some stuff. And uh, in the process of the order, I would get that, that round circle that, that goes round. Are you guys familiar with that? Some of you that have we, As Apple, we call it the circle of death. You know, your, your computer's just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting, and, and then it blitzes out or whatever, and then you're asking yourself, did, did the order go through? Do I need to redo it? But if I redid it, will I pay twice? You know, all of that stuff, uh, and then along with, uh, you know, is it going to get there on time and I'm missing anyone? So I thought I was going to take all the stress out of it. I think I added some stress to my life. But, uh, you know, those are little things, but for some... There's the intense loneliness or uh, crushing grief because of someone who won't be there this Christmas. I had one of those thoughts uh, this week, my friend Billy Hornsby. A lot of you remember Billy. And uh, this will be the first Christmas uh, while Billy's in heaven. And I know as I thought about that this week, it brought some loneliness. I used to talk to him almost every day. And, and then I thought about his family, you know, I mean, so much closer and, and how they're feeling at, the, at this point. There's a lot, of, a lot of stress, loneliness. At best, you've got parties to plan and gifts to buy and elaborate meals to cook, long trips to take or out-of-town guests to host. And to make it even worse, if you're like me, your neighbor's house decorations look like they belong in the December issue of Gardening Gun and yours looks like a cheap version of the Griswolds. Does anybody relate to that? at all. That's kind of where, where we are. Instead of bringing joy, Christmas can bring a lot of frustration. I, I heard about a woman who was shopping in a larger, larger city and, and uh, doing some last, last minute shopping at the mall, you know. And, and so she's got her arms full of, you know, great big bulky uh, packages and the elevator door opens up and it's full, you know. And so they're all kind of giving her the eye and looking at her. Finally, they all kind of grudgingly suck it in and make space and as the doors close she blurts out whoever's responsible for this whole christmas thing ought to be arrested strung up and shot a few people nodded their head in agreement kind of grunted their affirmation and somebody way in the back corner of the elevator said don't worry they already crucified him (laughs) i thought that was good but obviously not um there's, there's gales of laughter and ahas going on here at this, this uh, long point. You just can't hear it. We, you know, we need to remember who's responsible for this whole 
Christmas thing. It's about a God who so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would have eternal life. You know, we're in a series right now we're calling the Christmas Playlist where we've taken some of the Christmas carols that we all know and love and we're kind of going behind the songs a little bit and given uh, some of, of why they exist. We've done two or three. And this weekend, my task is to kind of uh, take a look at the song Joy to the World. We all know Joy to the World. It's one of our favorites. So let me tell you a little bit about kind of behind the song, how it originated. In fact, this song was written over 300 years ago by a guy named Isaac Watts. Uh, Isaac Watts was what they called a non-conforming hymn writer with a propensity uh, for rhyme. Uh, it happened at, a, at an early age for him. In fact, once when he was a boy, he had to explain how he came to have his eyes open during prayers. You know, they're having family prayers and he's got his eyes open and his dad catches him. And so his explanation was as follows. A little mouse for one of stairs ran up a rope to say its prayers. Now he thought that was pretty funny, but uh, his dad didn't think it was so funny. And so he administered a timeout in the aggressive way they did 300 years ago. And uh, upon receiving his corporal punishment, he cried, Oh, Father, Father, pity take, and I no more verses make. <laughs> I thought that was funny too. Um, so today, we would call him a freestyling rapper just spitting some rhymes because that's what he did. I mean, he just loved that stuff. But because of his non-conforming views, uh, he wasn't allowed by the Anglican church to go to Oxford or, or Cambridge, because that was for those that kind of believed in the, uh, the Church of England stuff, and he really was kind of a nonconformist. So he ended up being a non-denominational pastor of a large church in London. I kind of relate to that a little bit. And he wrote over 750 hymns, and really Isaac Watts pioneered the concept of what they called, and we would call, original songs of Christian experience. Uh, in other words, new poetry. Up until that point, because of the teachings of John Calvin, um, songs were limited to just the poetry of the Bible. So you would take, you know, like a psalm or a proverb and you would write a, a song. And that's great. That's good. But um, Isaac Watts is kind of the first one who uh, wrote from experience or even reinterpreted uh, the, the uh, songs or, or hymns of the Bible. And so he wrote the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, really as an interpretation of Psalm 98. And what I thought we'd do as we begin uh, this weekend in, in looking at this song and what the God has to say to us is to read Psalm 98, 1 through 9. And I want to read it out loud together. I know when we read, read long passages, it's hard for us to stay together. Basically, it's hard for me to slow down enough to stay with you. But let's do it together. And on your outline sheet or on the screens... Uh, if you're uh, at a place where you don't have an outline sheet and you're watching, you can, you can probably just kind of follow along. So let's read it. Sing a new song. A lot of times when we read together, we move our lips. So let's, let's do it again. They, they weren't doing that in Colombia. I, I know they weren't, okay? Sing a new song to the Lord, for He has done wonderful deeds. He has won a mighty victory by His power and holiness. The Lord has announced His victory and has revealed His righteousness to every nation. He has remembered His promise to love 
and be faithful to Israel. The whole earth has seen the salvation of our God. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Break out in praise and sing for joy. Sing your praise to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and melodious song, with trumpets and sound the ram's horn. Make a joyful symphony before the Lord, the King. Let the sea and everything in it shout His praise. Let the earth and all living things join in. Let the rivers clap their hands in glee. Let the hills sing out their songs of joy before the Lord. For the Lord is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nation with fairness. Now think about this. That's a song, I believe a song of David. And it's not a Christmas song, right? Or psalm because there is no Christ at this particular point. He's looking forward to a Messiah. Now what's interesting about Isaac Watts is uh, when he would write, even from the Psalms, he would uh, do a theological thing where he would go, all right, if David knew Jesus, this is kind of how he would, how, how, what he meant by that whole thing. And so when you hear Isaac Watts' uh, hymns, he kind of injects Jesus in them. And in, in this case, that, that would be true. But this psalm is not even, you know, it's not about the birth of Jesus so much. This song is about the second coming. It's glorifying Christ's re- uh, triumphant return at the end of the age. But it has become uh, one of the most popular. In fact, Joy to the World is the most published Christmas hymn in North America. And so we'll, we'll take a look at that in just a minute. Speaking of joy, though, uh, apparently there's not much joy in Facebook these days. I, somebody sent me an article um, from Facebook uh, called, or about Facebook, uh, called Facebook is Making Us Miserable. And it says this, it said just about everybody is on Facebook, but most have considered getting off. How many of you are on Facebook? Are you on Facebook? Okay, most of you are. And I think that's good. In fact, I think that's, can I give you permission? I've done it before. Go on Facebook during the service. Uh, Twitter during the service. It's great. I can't think of a better way. Now, not to, you know, see what your friends are doing or whatever, but I can't think of a better way to take the message inside the church, outside to your friends, than even taking the things that you're learning and posting them in Facebook or Twitter, and then, and then uh, it goes outside of, uh, of here. Most of us are on Facebook, but most of us have probably thought about quitting, and it's not because of security issues. It's not because of a lot of the other things. Um, the writer of this article said Facebook is making us unhappy by making everyone else look really, really happy. Do you, do you get that? I mean, they, they post their best pictures. In fact, we all believe that others have a better life than we do, and it makes us feel bad about ourselves. Have you ever, I mean, I'll be honest with you, there are some even pastors on Twitter that I've had to quit following. Because I get discouraged every time they tweet because their life is so wonderful. And I'm thinking, mine's not. Does anybody else relate to that? I mean, you know, you've got that. And he says in there, he says, we log on to Facebook. We look through the photographs and status messages of our, that our friends post. And we believe that everybody is happier and more successful than we are. 
And when I've spoken to friends and family members who've considered giving up Facebook, this is exactly the reason that they've given. They look at other people and feel miserable in comparison. As I read that, I thought, there's a lot of unhappiness this Christmas around the world just because of Facebook. What does the Bible say? You know, the Bible doesn't actually talk a lot about happiness. The Bible talks about joy, which is much, much deeper. See, happiness is a, is a state of mind that depends on our circumstances. I did a whole series on this at the beginning of the year called the DNA of Joy. That if my circumstances are good, if the happenings are good, then I can be happy. But if the happenings aren't, then I can't. But see, joy doesn't depend on what's happening. Joy is an inner sense of well-being that has nothing to do, or at least very little to do, with circumstances. It can't be found in, you know, in the stuff you have, uh, what you own, where you go, the positions that you have. And I, and I love how the first line of Joy to the World kind of sums it up. One reason that you and I can have joy is because the King has come. If you receive Jesus Christ as the king of your life, then joy will come. It's like your body craves air, food, and water, right? Mine craves food just a little bit too much, especially during the Christmas season. But that's what your body craves. Some people have said that your, your spirit man kind of has a, a hole inside that's a God-shaped hole. Easy way of explaining it. I believe that. I believe that your spirit man craves, literally craves relationship with your father if you try to fill it with anything else besides god you will be forever dissatisfied but when you learn to fill that emptiness inside with god then joy comes so what i want to do this weekend i'm going to admit to you at the very beginning it's a simple simple message but it's the gospel and i want to just i I want to do a simple lesson on joy from the words of the song. How does joy come? And there's four verses. Uh, if you were raised in a Baptist church, you only sang verses 1, 2, and 4. Okay, that's kind of how they did it. But there's four verses to the song. Some of you, I'm going to expose you to verse 3 for the very first time. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? Okay? And so I'm going to do four, four ideas, four, four uh, ideas on how joy can come based on the words of the song. The first one is this. Is joy comes... When I receive the king. Joy comes when I receive the king. What's the first verse? Yeah, I thought, it, should we do this? Can we, can we sing it together? Just the first verse, acapella. I can't sing, but I, I could lead you guys in doing that. Can we do that? Here we go. Ready? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Sing in the campuses. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare Him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Give yourself a hand. You did pretty well. All right? Good. At the campuses, no cards. All you heard was me. You didn't heard them. Heard, heard them. Okay, that's really, that's really good. All right, good. That's the first verse. You know, joy comes when I receive the king. The original story, not everybody was joy-filled when Jesus was born. 
In fact, the biggest contrast of those that were full of joy and those that weren't was in the part of the story when the, when the Magi, when the wise men came from the east and they, they came and brought a report to Herod that there was a new king in town. There was a new king being born. Where can we find him? And you know the story. They followed a star. They asked Herod about a king. In a small southern town, not far from here, there was a nativity scene that showed great skill and talent had gone into creating it. Uh, one small feature bothered a visitor from the north that particular Christmas. The three wise men were wearing firemen's helmets. He was totally unable to come up with an explanation for that. And so, so he left. And as he was leaving town at you know, one of the quick stop gas stations or whatever, the edge of town... He asked the lady behind the counter about the helmets. She exploded into rage, started yelling at him. Don't you Yankees ever read the Bible, she said. He assured her that he did, but simply couldn't recall anything about firemen in the Christmas story. So she jerked her Bible from behind the counter and ruffled through some pages and finally jabbed her finger at a passage and sticking it in his face, she said, See, it says it right here. Three wise men came from afar. Okay, that's as good as it gets this weekend. So, so King Herod was anything but joyful when the Magi inquired about the birth of the new king. Why? Because the new king was a threat to him. He's the king. He's not going to tolerate a rival king. He's a bad guy. He killed his own family when they became a threat. And you know... You know, a couple of years later, he killed all of the, the little baby boys, two years old and under, causing great grief because he couldn't tolerate a, a rival king. And I thought about that. And today, there are some people who reject Jesus as king, who won't make him king because of the threat that he is to their lives. Sometimes it's a threat to our plans or we, we think it's a threat to our freedom. You know, if I receive Jesus, I won't be free anymore. Or it's a threat to our passions or our greed or our pride. And that's really not true. I mean, some of it, yeah, greed and pride. But a relationship with Jesus sets us free. It doesn't threaten our freedom. Joy comes when I surrender my life to the King. And so, you know, one of the lines... Uh, in the song says, let every heart prepare him room. And, and I would just challenge us here and in the campuses, wherever you might be, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you prepared your heart? Have you made space? Have you given room for Jesus to be king? Because joy comes when I make room for the king in my life. Maybe a second reason that joy comes. Joy comes when I, when I let the Savior reign. I don't think we're going to sing this one. Um, second verse says this. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rock hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. It says joy to the world, the Savior reigns. First one is the King has come, the Savior reigns. See, receiving Christ is the important first step, but it just doesn't stop there for us. We've got to let Him reign 
in our lives. You know, when Jesus was doing His ministry on the earth, uh, ultimately, huge crowds followed Him. You know? Uh, biggest show in town. People came from everywhere to see the stuff. And, uh, and, and they followed Him. They were ready to receive Him, but they were not ready to let Him take charge. They had an agenda. They wanted Him to do things their way. They, in, in, instead of, of, of maybe following His way, it's, God, I want You to do the thing for me. And whenever He confronted that, people left and the crowds thinned out. And today there are a lot of people who are more than willing to receive all of the good things that Christ offers them, but they don't want to change, you know, like their business ethics. They don't want to change uh, the language that they use when they get under pressure. Or they don't want to change you know, the image or whatever. They, won't, they don't want Jesus to be in charge of where they live or who they date or who they marry. Or what kind of career that they choose. And I ought to take they out of there and just say, that's the truth about many of us. We want to receive Jesus as, as king, but you know, don't get too close to the, to the areas that I want to stay in control of. Let me tell you what happens. When I receive Christ without letting Him reign, I, I miss out on one thing, and that's joy. Because hypocrisy just zaps the joy out of your life. Uh, would you agree that most of us do a pretty lousy job of running our own lives? Would you agree with that? See, God knows what brings us joy. God knows who will suit you best in marriage. God knows the kind of work that was made for you. And joy is just the byproduct of obedience to Almighty God. They're saying, God, I'm going to let you be God. I'm going to let you direct every step of my life. That's what it means to let Jesus reign. You're the Lord of my life. You're the, G the CEO of my life. You're the general manager of my, not only the entire universe, but my universe. You know me better than I know myself. You know what will produce uh, real joy in my life. And so as I'm obedient, then joy comes. So let me ask you, how obedient are you? How obedient are you to the little promptings inside, the Holy Spirit that just prompts you into, in, in, not just into relationship, but into living your life as He would have you be. I can predict your joy by your obedience. So joy comes when I receive the King. Joy comes when I let the Savior reign. Let's look at the third verse of the song. Joy comes when I confess my sin. This is the one you guys never sang in your Baptist church or my Assembly of God church for that matter. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, for as the curse, far as the curse is found. No more let sin and sorrow grow. Let me just do a little survey here this weekend and at the campuses. How many of you sin? Okay. All right, good. It's almost 100% here. It really is 100%. Uh, those who didn't raise their hand, they are lying. Uh, in fact, two weeks ago in this series, uh, Joshua got you to admit that you were a bunch of lying, thieving adulterers. I, I heard it, I watched it online, and you did it. Okay, so here's the question. Why do you sin? Why do you do it? Why do you disobey God? Why do you sin? 
because sin promises happiness. Right? I know I shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't go there. I know I shouldn't look at that. I know I shouldn't have that attitude. I know I shouldn't say that. But, why do I do it? Because I think it's going to make me feel better. It's going to make me... It's going to make me feel good. It's going to make me happiness because sin promises happiness. And you know what? Sin delivers for a season. There is happiness for a season. My friend Craig Rochelle likes to say it like this. Sin is like a sneeze. It feels good at first, but it leaves a huge mess. How do you know that? Yeah, yeah. So sin promises happiness, but what does sin deliver? Sin delivers sorrow. You don't have to go as far as the first story in the Bible. Adam and Eve. God said, here's the deal. Here's the plan. Just be obedient to me. I know what I'm doing. I know what will bring you joy. And so what do they do? They eat the forbidden fruit because they thought it would make them wise. This will make you happy. This will make you more fulfilled, more satisfied. I know what God said, but here's... Here's what will really happen. You will be like God. So they thought sin promised happiness. What did it deliver? It brought a horrible curse. And it brought regret for a lifetime. See, the song says, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. And what the truth is, is that whenever there is sin, there's a curse. But whenever a sinner repents, there is joy. So what does repent mean? Repent, repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which just simply means changed mind. When I repent, it means that you agree that what God, uh, that agree with God that what you're doing is wrong. Okay? That's repentance. Repentance just goes, you know what? And you put your own sin in there. Whatever it is that tempts you to sin. The reason you sin is because sin promises happiness. The truth is sin delivers sorrow. Okay? There's a little happiness at first. Elsewise you wouldn't do it. But the ultimate end of it is sorrow. And so when you repent, you go, you, here's what you do. You make a mind shift. You go, you know what, I, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that if I do that, that I'll be better off. And I'm going to choose to agree with God. I'm going to choose to agree with God. I'm going to change my mind about the outcome of this sin in my life. That's, that's what repentance is. And that's the only thing that will sustain you for a long period of time. As long as you ra- rationalize that there's nothing really wrong with what you're doing, you can't repent. I love how my kids are parenting my grandchildren. I've told them several times, you guys are better parents than we ever were. Well, I can't say we. Debbie was great. I was okay, okay? But I love how they're learning to parent their kids. And my little grandson, every once in a while, they'll, they'll have him come up to me, you know, when, he, when he's done something the other day, he did it and he was throwing a little fit uh, in a public place. And uh, so the, uh, he walked up to me after we came out of the restaurant and he, he says real kind of sheepishly, Papa, I was wrong for throwing a fit. Will you forgive me? I was wrong for throwing a fit. Will you forgive me? And it's something that his parents have taught. And here's, here's what I know. In that particular case, I think he was almost sincere. Okay, I, I really do. 
It was, it was right at the point, right at the point of repentance, right at the point of changing his mind that the behavior really didn't bring happiness. It was bringing sorrow, okay? It was cool. It was, there, there was kind of joy in it. But I also have seen him and uh, my oldest granddaughter who's learning to do the same thing. I've seen false repentance. Have you ever seen false repentance? They're just ticked off that you couldn't do what they could do. But the game was this. You've got to go say this in order to get to here, right? Do you ever do that? False repentance. See? In false repentance, all it is is, I got caught. But I still think that if I could do this, be with her, be with him, uh, say this, have this attitude, whatever it happens to be, buy this when I can't afford it. But I, but I, but I get caught in this, and I, I know I need to say the right words, but I really think that if I could do that, that I could be happy. If I could move somewhere, if I could do, do, I could be happy. And so I say the right things, but it's not true repentance, and I never experience joy. See, joy comes when I agree with God, when I say, God, you're the God of the universe. You know better than I do what I need, who I need to be with, what will bring joy in my life. And so I'm going to agree with you. Even when I don't understand it, I'm going to agree with you. That's why we offer repentance opportunities at every service, at every campus that we have. Because sincere repentance brings joy. And when you go to the cross, at the end of a service, we have a response time. And when you go to the cross with true repentance, and, you, and the Holy Spirit puts a bee in your heart about something that you're doing, something you're saying, something you're involved in, and you know it's not right, and you maybe you write it down, or you go to a cross and you just put a piece of paper on the cross, and you really meant it, and you agree with God that you were wrong, then repentance brings joy. In fact, repentance brings joy sometimes in amazing ways. I read a, actually reread a story this week um, that I read when I was in school in Colorado by Bret Hart. Bret Hart was a Western writer. He lived in California in the late 1800s. And he wrote this story about a mining camp called The Luck of Roaring Camp. Let me just kind of recount just a little bit of the story. Roaring Camp was, uh, the setting was the gold rush in in California. It was the meanest, toughest mining town in the West. There were more murders, more crime there than anywhere. One of the reasons probably is because it was inhabited only by men. Only men in this case, except one woman who unfortunately made her living in the only way she knew how. And her name was Cherokee South. And in the story, Sal becomes pregnant and she gives birth to a little boy and then she dies in childbirth. And none of these old crusty miners knew who the father was and they didn't know what to do with the baby. And so they take this baby and they kind of put him in a box and put some old rags underneath him. And the the guys are kind of coming through to see the baby and they say, this doesn't look right. So somebody sets a hat out and they take a collection. These old miners are putting watches and gold pieces and whatever in the hat. And actually, they collected several hundred dollars, and they sent one of the guys to the city to bring the right things. So he bought a cradle and some silk blankets and some clothes, and, um, and, and they put the baby kind of in that. And as they did that, 
they looked around and uh, noticed that the floor looked dirty because it was. Everything was a mess. A bunch of guys in this town. And so then you've got some big tough guys on their hands and knees scrubbing the floors. And after they got the floors clean, they noticed that the rest of the house looked bad. And so they made repairs and hung some curtains. They discovered that the baby needed sleep and he didn't sleep well when they were cussing and fighting and all that stuff. So they kind of toned down on some of that. And some even started to smile a little bit around the baby. And they took turns, these big old guys watching. They'd never seen a baby watching over him. And then ultimately, uh, some of them even planted some flowers around the mine entrance because they thought, you know, it looked better and brighter with a little baby in the town. And they started to take some pride. They noticed how dirty their hands were. And soon the general store sold out of soap and shaving gear, according to the story. Before they realized it, that baby had changed everything. The story kind of gives a small picture of the way that the baby in the cradle, that the Son of God can transform our lives. We can change because we understand that the King has come. And the King has come to reign in our lives. And we begin to repent of our sins. Have you, uh, has the baby of Bethlehem changed your life? Let, let, let me give you the fourth kind of simple point from the song, and that's this. Joy comes when we live in truth and grace. Joy comes when I live in truth and grace. Fourth verse says, He rules the world with truth and grace. And He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness, the wonders of His love. See, joy comes because Jesus is kind of this this perfect balance, this perfect model of truth and grace. Have you know you need both? You need truth and you need grace. If you're going to live your life, you're going to raise kids, whatever it is you're going to do, if you're going to be a boss, you need truth and grace. See, sometimes truth by itself isn't very gracious. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know what? I had this conversation with so-and-so and I just, I just told it like it is. I just told, I, I'm a truth teller. That's what I do. And here's how you can interpret that. That person has probably offended somebody by going heavy on truth and light on grace. Has that ever happened to you? You ever had somebody that did that? Okay, sure. You need both. You need truth and you need grace. And Jesus came to bring both truth and grace. I thought about that, thought about the song. It reminded me of a story about a dad who found a way to mix truth and grace one year at Christmas. They were, um, they were setting up a nativity scene in the front yard. You guys ever done that? You know, and they got all the little statues, you know, these little guys about like this. And they got the Mary and they got the Joseph. They got the little manger and they got the cradle. And, or I guess that's the same thing. And then they got the baby and, you know, they got all the little barnyard animals and all that kind of stuff. And so, and so little Johnny, their, their young son, comes out carrying one of his favorite toys. And it's a, it's a great big inflatable Tyrannosaurus Rex, the king of the dinosaurs. Kind of like this guy. You guys were wondering what this guy was here for. Isn't that cool? Wow. 
I'd like one of those for Christmas. That's kind of cool. But anyway, here's, here's what the kid had. It wasn't like this exactly, but he had, a, he had one of these big inflatable ones. You, you've seen that stuff. And so, and so he hauls it out here, and here you've got this, this great big huge inflatable Tyrannosaurus Rex towered fiercely over the nativity scene. One of these is not like the others. Something does not uh, uh, fit here. And so, and so his dad took him aside, tried to explain that, you know, dinosaurs existed, you know, like thousands of years before Jesus and, you know, to explain the whole, you know, nativity thing and how that his favorite dinosaur, while it was good, it was not going to fit in the nativity scene. And so the kid's brokenhearted. And so the dad decided, okay, let's mix a little truth with grace. The truth is this, the dinosaur doesn't belong. Grace is this, Dad took the dinosaur and put him behind the nativity scene and let him stay there. So you can imagine cars driving by, seeing the nativity scene with a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, behind the scene. I'm sure it caused people to come to Jesus, or at least, <laughs> at least talk about it. Now listen to me, listen to me. Actually, that Tyrannosaurus Rex might not be as out of place as what you would think. Because there's a nativity account that very few of you will think about this Christmas in the Bible. I put it in your outline sheet. It's found in Revelations chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. And it's the nativity scene from the point of John the Revelator that goes kind of behind the little animals and all that and gets into kind of the spiritual warfare that was going on. I'm going to read it. Follow along. He says, Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out in the pain of labor as she awaited her delivery. And then suddenly I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his head, and his tail dragged down one-third of the stars, which he threw to the earth. And he stood before the woman as she was about to give birth to her child, ready to devour the baby as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a boy who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. And the child was snatched away from the dragon and caught up to God to his throne." Let's see Linus read that, huh? Did you get Linus? Peanuts? Yeah, okay. Now the truth is this. You know, that whole story, what does that mean? What does it mean? It's revelations. I don't know. But you know, it, I'll tell you what I think it, what I think it means. It's, it's Satan, the enemy of everything. And it's kind of the whole story from creation to Jesus ascending to the Father. And how he meant to destroy the whole thing, but God thwarted his plans. And here's the truth. There's a dinosaur, or that dinosaur hovering over the manger in that kind of nativity scene. It's probably more appropriate than we might realize. Because for each of us, there's a menacing character like this guy that threatens the joy and to rob us of our joy of Christmas. There's a menacing character 
called sad memories or maybe it's lost love or maybe it's people that you're related to but you don't want to spend time with. Or maybe it's unfulfilled expectations. You, you know, at Christmas is, and kind of the New Year is a time where we sit around and we, and we tend to think about where our lives have gone and you never, you never thought your life would be where it's ended up right now. Or maybe it's regrets about decisions that you've made. At Christmas, we can remember that that tiny baby in the manger is stronger than all the dinosaurs, all the dragons in our lives. Because God gives us the victory through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's my message. Simple. But I want to, I want to challenge you with it this Christmas. I want to challenge you to receive the joy. It can be yours if you receive Christ. If you repent of your sins, change your mind. If you let Jesus reign every day in your life and allow Him to do it in truth and grace. So don't overlook the source of joy. Joy to the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank You uh, for the truth of Christmas. I thank You for um, how You work in our lives. I thank You for this wonderful group of people who have gathered here in, in various places throughout this nation to celebrate Jesus. And uh, Lord, I just pray that in the next few minutes that you would challenge us to just be honest with you, to open our lives, to make room, to make room in our hearts in this season for the King of Kings to allow you to, to uh, spread joy not just happiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.